Hello, this is Josh, and you're listening to The Invitation. So I am here joined by a friend, uh, Julie Van Til, pastor and spiritual director, Julie Van Til. Thanks for coming to sit with us. So glad to be here, Josh. Thanks for the invitation. Great. So as with the other episodes with our guest presenters, we're going to get to know Julie a little bit more as we approach chapter three of our summer read. This is Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair by Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson. And uh, the idea here is just to continue to stir the, the pot, to stir up our faith, to have a spiritual conversation with Julie in a way that continues to help all of us persevere in a rigorous book that's asking us to see ourselves, to see each other, and to still hope that God's with us in the midst of this. But before we dive in, Julie and I want to open with some prayer. So I invite you wherever you are, whether you're on a jog or working in the kitchen, driving in the car, to slow your breath and to find that secret place inside the depths of your heart where there is a door, a door that you can open to the love, the truth, and the wisdom, the patience, the generosity of Jesus. Because we do not believe we can practice this repentance and this work of repair without the abiding help of the living God. So we pray a prayer from Howard Thurman. Open unto me light from my darkness. Open unto me courage for my fear. Open unto me hope for my despair. Open unto me peace for my turmoil. Open unto me joy for my sorrow. Open unto me strength for my weakness. Open unto me wisdom for my confession. Open unto me forgiveness for my sins. Open unto me love for my hates. Open unto me thyself for myself. Lord, Lord, open unto me. Amen. Amen. So, Julie, let's get to know you some more. I, we were just trying to recall when we met, and we can't. <laughs> um, but I think it was definitely, you know, that you had presented yourself as a spiritual director. And anytime I meet someone in the Reformed context that is describing and practicing direction, I'm like, I want to keep track of that person. So, so you're in Chicago now. Tell us a little bit about your current ministry. 
Great. I'm the pastor of Flossmore Community Church, which is an intentional interdenominational church. Wow. From its founding, um, I I believe they didn't want to consider themselves non-denominational. Okay. Uh, as in excluding sure. those who associated with denominations but really attempting to honor the various traditions of the people who were coming to this area. Mm-hmm. So uh, we stumbled upon each other uh, as my spouse and I were both wondering what was next for our vocational moves. And I kind of knew it when mm-hmm. I came to the first worship service that our, mm-hmm. our uh, values really aligned. Mm-hmm. And it was as a visitor in that worship service that I found out they were also looking for a pastor. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, Because I I think in that season, I was finding a lot of joy in the spiritual direction world and the Enneagram Mm. coaching world. Mm. Uh, But there was something about that engagement that I Mm. knew uh, the spirit was... uh, Mm opening up that door or knocking on that door that you were talking about. Good. So uh, I can't not want to ask what it's like to serve as a lead pastor, as someone who has a contemplative spirituality, someone who has practiced spiritual direction. Do you find yourself approaching this position any differently than you would have otherwise? Oh, Yes. I'm so thankful for that question. Uh, One of the ways I think I've changed or um, grown in my approach to supporting staff who report to me Mm -hmm. um, has has shifted over the past, Mm -hmm. I would say, five to eight years. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the ways is just how we listen Mm-hmm. to each other in meetings, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm air quoting meetings that we mm-hmm. have with one another, mm-hmm. uh, that we're really not just listening to what's on the agenda, but we're listening mm-hmm. uh, to God as a conversation partner. Mm-hmm. And so I had this wonderful engagement with a staff member who um, sat with me for their annual review. Mm-hmm. And their report was afterward that it it felt like spiritual direction. Mm-hmm. And I was not intending to do that. Yeah. I was just having us both listen yeah. uh, to what God was revealing for us for the next step. And it was powerful. Yeah. This is not an ancillary conversation in my discernment in terms of how this connects back to the question of white supremacy it really cuts to the core for me of what a pastor is, what we have learned to envision, what leadership in the church is. And uh, so the the word that we've been returning to throughout the, the series is from uh, Willie James Jennings, that the Western pedagogy is a pedagogy of the plantation. I rehearsed this with... Pastor Denise at the beginning of our series, and then I've brought it up since. Um, and so the three characteristics of that are uh, control, possession, and mastery. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh. 
So, uh, so then Jennings will put this into our imaginations by describing the master today as the polished man. And there's a lot, you know, we could just do a whole, <laughs> whole episode just on that. So, but, but, but just to bring it back to practice, um, for you to have just meetings with your staff, I'm hearing you say, oh, that felt more like direction. Mm. Mm. Instead of me here, could I, could I ask you, instead of me as the lead pastor here to control you, staff person, mm. to try mm. to possess you, you, you are my employee, <laughs> or mm. for me to have to master you. Does that resonate? Yes, I, um, I realized on this journey of understanding my own whiteness that there was an ideal that uh, I was trying to continue to craft myself into, mm-hmm. and that it was my job then mm. to uh, scrutinize mm. Um where, and it wouldn't be a judge. I didn't think it was judgy. I just thought this scrutinization will help you become Mm -hmm. more like this ideal. Yeah. And so my responsibility is to look out for those Mm -hmm. gaps or Mm -hmm. those limits or those differences Mm -hmm. and mold and shape. Mm -hmm. Um, What a powerful thing to realize that Mm -hmm. I um, was serving that master Mm. And in that way, cutting off huge parts of myself mm-hmm. um, and the diversity of the people that I was sitting with, mm. and now I can now I can feel it when other people are doing it to me. Mm. Wow! Mm-hmm. Boy, I just want to take the whole episode and then unpack um, what that especially means as a woman. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, honestly, you know, just put a little tag and we'll maybe we'll get to this later in another direction. But yeah, watching the women that I've served alongside, learning to discover what it really means to be a woman in leadership and not having to pretend to be one of the dudes on staff in order just to be heard, yeah. just to be respected. And um, so you're modeling that. And so I suspect that that's one of the reasons why. Uh, Pastor Denise, when I said to her at the beginning, who would you in your network, in your orbit, would you want to recommend for taking a chapter? And you were the first one. So can you imagine why she would pick you? <laughs> you, can toot, you can toot your horn a little bit here. We're already talking about, we're already talking about the goodness of doing direction with your staff. I mean, they're, they're, you're all of a sudden like clipping on the cool radar for me. Wow. Lead pastor as director. <laughs> uh, also being sensitive to when people uh, don't want to be directed. Sure. There you go. Trusting you go. that they know their boundaries yeah. in that moment. Yeah. And I might not be the safe person for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's one of the first things I would say is um, gently walking into relationship mm-hmm. with others, trying to be as aware of yourself mm-hmm. as you are um, respecting who they are. Yeah. I remember becoming an intern at Maple Avenue Ministries. Oh, okay. And uh, it was there that I met Denise. Wow. Um, I was so grateful 
that this multiracial community mm-hmm. was willing to uh, welcome me yeah. as the new kid on the block, as a blonde white person uh, who's clearly green about all mm. the dynamics, mm. but aware that she's green. Mm. And I think that is a, a huge mm-hmm. gift that mm-hmm. um, I didn't realize I was embodying. Yeah. Um, because it just made me humble. Like, why would I pretend to know what I don't know? Please tell me if I step on your toes. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be so honored if you would tell me a little bit of your story, you know, mm-hmm. as I got to know people in the congregation. Um, and then, of course, there's the desperate, teach me, teach me. And then the realization, yeah. oh, yeah, it's not, it's not their job to teach me. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. And that's something that Denise has said to me recently that just the gift as any white person would come to this conversation to have already the awareness that they know they're going to get some things wrong and to not come in with the presumption and the the sense I have to control and possess and master this before I've even really begun the journey. So just to have this posture of openness because we're all going to fail in this. It's not a matter of if we fail when we try to come to these very vulnerable things. It's just when and how we're able to own that and welcome more of God into it. So that's what I hear you saying. was your, And that built trust with you and her over the years then. Mm-hmm. And that what a dance we do mm-hmm. um, when we honor someone's... Um, identity mm-hmm. as a socially constructed person mm-hmm. in their lifetime. And we honor their identity as just a image of God, yeah. human friend, sister in Christ, brother mm-hmm. in Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the dance mm-hmm. that um, we play in relationship, or at least I feel like I, I need to be aware of those things mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, amen. That's really helpful. I, uh, can't help but want to pause slowing down this conversation to make it approachable for others is just honoring you and each of the presenters. I know that we could spend several hours diving into that, but let's um, thank you for sharing yourself as we get to know you and the perspective you bring to chapter three. How would you like to dive into this and help our listeners approach this this chapter. The truth will set you free. Mm. Um, Seeing the effect of white supremacy, this chapter um, was such a gift in the, the truth that came out. and the ways that we resist the truth Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that whole groups of people change the narrative within a decade Mm -hmm. so that we don't have to be culpable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be our fault. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can shift the blame. We can degrade others. We can prop up this system. The system is so heavy Mm -hmm. on the narrative 
And if our strength as truth tellers isn't strong enough to lift up um, underneath that weight, then I feel like the truth gets crushed and becomes um, a lie. It becomes um, new myths that that pop up. That was so powerful for me as we as we read through this chapter. Uh, and when I realized that that truth not only robbed people, I mean, the loss of that truth not only robbed people mm-hmm. of their inherent dignity, of their history, of their power, of their wealth, mm-hmm. I realized it robbed me of the knowledge mm-hmm. of wrestling with my own identity and my own history. Mm-hmm. So I think I want to start with a quote on page 82, um, right above the theft of power, where it says, the enormous and tragic consequences of this mass theft of history condemned multiple generations of Americans to live in utter ignorance about the truth of their own history and it robbed them of the opportunity to reckon with this history and to begin to heal its wounds. Uh, I get really mad when I think about that. (laughs) That opportunity was stolen from me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel that in micro ways in my relationships, like just tell me the truth. Then we can deal with the truth. And I saw it in this macro way. Mm-hmm. You were trying to let me not see the truth. Mm-hmm. And underneath that, what we're saying as people of faith, when we see the anger, it's 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 quite staggering. This whole this whole chapter is like a litany of all these myths, as you as you name that, the different kinds of theft. And it's overwhelming, and it's so easy to, to get angry, and there is anger that's necessary. But what we're saying is, underneath that, I've been robbed not just of loving these people, these, these people who, I keep returning to Thurman's vocab, the, the people whose back is against the wall, the disinherited. Um, not only was I robbed for the chance of loving them and seeing them really as beautiful human beings. Um, but also believing in the gospel, my faith has been uh, lessened instead of, because what we're saying is, oh, I don't know how to deal with the complexities of this darkness. So I'm going to tell a different narrative, a different story. Mm. And then that domesticates and makes the gospel smaller and simpler. And, uh, and almost, uh, useless and really it's uh you know we we could go back to this whole idea of christian atheism like do i really believe that jesus is here to help us with all of these original uh, the, the the layers of our original sin so so anger and then why am i angry because mm-hmm. i want i want to know how to believe the real truth of the gospel here mm. so mm. Thank you. That is a powerful, so many just takeaway uh, sections here that preach, preach, preach. So what, is there a particular item, you know, out of this, these layers of theft, 
that really rang your bell that really it's either like that articulated this so well for me i hadn't i, I had that that uh suspicion but i hadn't seen it quite like that or um something that was completely new to you mm. that you hadn't thought about yet so uh, there are two I think the one I'll take first is the theft of truth of identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Denise actually in, I can't name a conversation that yeah. we had about this, but conversations with Denise helped me pay better attention to the inherent bias that I had against black bodies. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't, I didn't know that mm-hmm. until I started to realize under the theft of truth that something in me had been conditioned to see muscle mm-hmm. when I saw black bodies, mm-hmm. which meant strength. Mm-hmm which meant you must be able to take more than I can take. Oh, wow. Um, which meant it must not hurt you. Right. And I'm, I must be vulnerable right. and frail. Mm. Wow. Uh, and how that will feed into the black demonization. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The... I didn't relate to the lazy, deceptive, duplicitous Mm -hmm. uh, part of the demonizing the black morality, the inferior morality of blackness. Mm -hmm. But um, I didn't realize that that was the narrative during slavery and it Mm -hmm. had been flipped into Mm -hmm. black bodies are dangerous and sexual and predatory. Yeah. And it plants such a fear Mm -hmm. in the body of white people, especially white women. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in otherizing, mm-hmm. I just, I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's different than me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we, obje- we either shrink mm-hmm. away from it mm-hmm. in fear, or we objectify it and mm-hmm. even fantasize about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think that that has been something I've learned as I've been in relationship with black bodies sure. in real friendship with black bodies sure. and received the challenge to say, how does your body Julie mm-hmm. react when you are around other bodies? Mm-hmm. What is the amygdala doing mm-hmm. um, out of fear? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So this is uh potentially a rabbit trail for some folks, but I believe it fits in in the sense of there's a lot of new research being done in neuropsych about generational trauma. And it all comes back around to things like this, of how we've been conditioned uh, to fear certain things. Um, And so just bring this into the simple um, realm of if America is founded on these uh, views of a black body where we are controlling, mastering, possessing, 
a black body, then just because we uh, flip a law, you know, change the laws on it, and then fight a war over it, another, you know, couple, you know, generations later, doesn't mean that somewhere deep in our psychology there are these questions. I mean, we as white people don't even know what to do with our own bodies. <laughs> We're afraid of our own bodies. <laughs> so, so then what are we going to do when we turn around to try to deal? Personally, you know, you're making me think of uh, just yesterday at church, I, I saw a, a brother who was a student of mine at Hope College. And when he was an underclassman, uh, you know, big guy, but but a little pudgy, and um, now he, he's a, a trainer, and he it's first time since the pandemic's over. He is enormous. <laughs> he is huge. And my joke was, when I saw how big his arms are and how broad his chest is, and I was like, oh, don't hurt me. Mm. <laughs> and I was just being playful. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, mm. I wish I had time to, to bring him on to the podcast mm. and talk about his body. What, uh, as a black man, his love to be himself, to be, he seems more at home in his body than ever. With, and then here comes Josh Banner with the white gaze. Oh, man. <laughs> so, thank you. Yeah, they talk about the animalization, you know, the demonization. But yeah, the idea, you know, the black body is is, is labor. You know, the, the slave owners thought of slavery was their, their greatest capital. You know, my grandpa and my dad, they grew up on a, industrial farm you know we've got a big shed full of machinery well go back to the 17th century and that was the machinery was the black body and you put the machinery away in a barn at Mm -hmm. night Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and that was a powerful theme Mm -hmm. in this chapter the Mm -hmm. the invisibility yeah doing the work out there, away from where it's seen, and then Mm -hmm. hidden in small places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the classic, we've been encouraging folks to read some uh, literature, whether it's poetry or or fiction, from black authors. And so, classic would be Ralph Ellison, of course, if you want to read The Invisible Man. Um, Very difficult book to, to get into. But, uh, and I think that Toni Morrison's all about this, trying to make the black body visible. Um, But it's interesting because first they named the romantization, you know, how we have this love-hate with black culture. We want to, we want to like black bodies, but only on our terms. (laughs) When they win for our team or they make the music we like. So this is another level of theft where we're, we're, we're robbing their culture. So we like them for these products that they offer us, these performances, but we're not willing to see them otherwise. Otherwise, they're invisible to us. Mm. Mm. There are some movies, I can't name them right now, but mm-hmm. uh, movies about uh, black musicians, mm-hmm. uh, singers mm-hmm. uh, in the Jim Crow era. Mm-hmm who were used just like that Mm -hmm. and to see the stories behind the scenes Mm -hmm. uh, is so powerful. Mm -hmm. It really um, enters 
the portion of the chapter where we talk about the theft of wealth, mm-hmm. um, the wealth of gifts and talent, mm-hmm. of creativity and brilliance um, that's extracted. Mm-hmm. And then as they would be able to use that post-slavery, mm-hmm. gain wealth or gain some sort of well-being for themselves, it's obstructed. Mm-hmm. And it's obstructed by segregation or it's obstructed by voting laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all kept in a box. Mm-hmm. You can only come so far. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You're on 87. Um, well, I'm going to do 86. Uh, white supremacy's economy is rooted in a prior conception of the world itself and of its value. And after all, what one believes something to be or not to be shapes one's value of it. As theologian, here we go, here's my, here's my favorite, <laughs> Willie James Jennings has shown white supremacy's approach to wealth is rooted in a fundamentally dominative and extricative view of the world, a distinct theological vision of creation. And in this account, <laughs> in this account, the created world, rather than having its own integrity that lays claim on human beings, enabling and limiting their actions, it's instead a shapeless thing to be claimed, controlled, and ultimately used according to the desires of those who presume mastery over it. Oh, man. Oh, yes, it's a distorted theology of creation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't always that way. Mm-hmm. Some, some humans mm-hmm. long before us mm-hmm. understood that mutual symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. between creation and the land and the creatures within it, mm-hmm. that there was a call to serve and preserve Mm -hmm. so that we would all be well. Mm -hmm. I just read um, a document from the Presbyterian mission called Sense of Place. Mm -hmm. And it says, instead, we have created sacrifice zones Mm -hmm. in the world where we have made peace Mm -hmm. with raping swaths of land Mm -hmm. of its resources and saying, Mm -hmm. we'll sacrifice this plot where now no one can live Mm -hmm. well for the sake of whatever progress is going on elsewhere. But most of those sacrifice zones exist in communities of color. Mm. So (laughs) the sacrifice zone is the opposite of our understanding of our cruciform theology. Yeah. We don't sacrifice other people. Mm. We don't sacrifice Mm -hmm. creation for Mm -hmm. ourselves. We don't sacrifice the Mm -hmm. humanity of Africans we stole from their continent Mm -hmm. for our sake. Mm -hmm. The way of Jesus is to lay down one's life for one's friends. Yeah. To love the neighbor as oneself. Mm -hmm. 
And that we can't just draw a line then and say, okay, here is where the boundary of my neighborhood stops. The next plot can be a sacrifice zone. Mm-hmm. They can give it all up for our sake. Mm-hmm. That's theft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just want to slow the tape here for folks. This is a lot to absorb. And so just to rehearse this, we're, we're understanding we, we have so much, so much of our culture war around the misunderstanding of critical race theory. It's just the beginning, really, of the scriptural account the prophetic view of the brokenness here. Critical race theory, as, as I said earlier, isn't saying thoroughly enough, and also with the hope of the gospel behind it. So, we fundamentally are just coming at ourselves and the world, all of creation, with the same kind of posture that Adam and Eve had. I know what I'm doing. I will do what I want. I will control. I will consume I'm going to do whatever I want, when I want. <laughs> just, just, I tease my kids. I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want. <laughs> They're just small versions. They're just small versions of me. <laughs> so, so when I look at all of creation, including black bodies, I, uh, Wendell Berry says in the um, Unsettling of America, his seminal essay, that we are either nurturers or exploiters. The exploiter looks at the land, or in this case, the black body, to figure out what they can get out of the resource, what they can take. Whereas the nurturer looks at the land or the black body or all of creation, stewardship, and wonders what they can, how they can serve the land, how they can bring it, not just to sustainability, but to flourishing. So when we talk about white supremacy, we're really talking about the, f- the fundamental troubles of our whole civilization as an agrarian society of control. And we just put that, that, uh, that yoke, that, uh, that plow, that uh, spade into the black body as well as the land. Wow, that's powerful, Josh. Mm. Mm. I really appreciate bringing it back to the whole theology of creation mm-hmm. and, and our place in it. I think mm-hmm. sometimes our a Genesis 2 account, better mm-hmm. known to Christians, mm-hmm. uh, would be more powerful than relying on the Genesis 1. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> it gets down to the common dirt Mm-hmm. that we're all from and this powerful beautiful place we've been set together mm-hmm. uh, can I read a poem please uh, it's called The Moment by Margaret Atwood the moment when after many years of hard work and a long voyage, you stand in the center of your room, house, half acre, square mile, island, country, knowing at last how you got there and say, I own this. 
is the same moment when the trees unloose their soft arms from around you. The birds take back their language. The cliffs fissure and collapse. Mm -hmm. The air moves back from you like a wave and you can't breathe. Mm. No, they whisper, you own nothing. Mm. You were a visitor, time after time, climbing the hill, planting the flag, proclaiming. We never belonged to you. You never found us. Mm. It was always the other way around. Mm. 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 I'm, yeah, I don't have, I don't have anything for a minute. <laughs> That's great. Let's just sit for a minute. As you share that poem, what stirs in you especially? How does that poem offer you some vocabulary for this journey? Mm. I, re I was reminded about, about the poem because of our conversation about the theology of creation. Mm -hmm. And it connects to theft for me because I was taught to own the land. Mm -hmm. I was taught to... Um, acquire knowledge, get a job, make money, buy things, possess things. Mm. And I didn't realize how much that was robbing mm. me of the natural gifts mm. that God has imbued creation and mm. all the people around me mm -hmm. for me to receive yeah. when they are free to be what they were created to be. Mm-hmm. And so um, just being shocked into seeing all of those gifts pulled back Yeah. once we exercise our control yeah. uh, made me ache. Yeah. Yeah. And to put this in the real personal vocabulary, um, as the, as, as the uh, practice of mindfulness continues to help uh, from the workplace to the home to the school, what we're talking about is how can I be present? How can I be present consciously, physically, to my body, to my thoughts, to my heart? So when we talk about contemplative practice, we're basically saying mindfulness plus the Holy Spirit. You know, how do I still myself? How do I slow down so that I can take the now into view? So when I'm a consumer then, when I am primarily looking at my life as utility for exploitation, I cannot be present to myself. I cannot be present to my family, let alone God. So you're saying through that poem, it's reminding you of that sense of where is home? Where, where, where do I belong? But all these acquisitions of power distance us. From, from being in it. So are there particular other things? Let's keep unpacking um, the kinds of obstructions. Let's name the demons, as it were, of control with, uh, with responding to Quan and Thompson. Mm -hmm. 
When you said control, it reminds me of the section of uh, the theft of power. Mm. I've often heard this phrase said when people pass away, rise, uh, rest in peace, mm. uh, rise in glory. Mm. It's only recently that I have witnessed my black friend saying, rest in peace, rise in power. Mm. And wow. it's interesting um, when you talk about sensing in your body, right away I was like, what is that political? You know, mm. <laughs> that we're conditioned to think like, what are you trying to say? Mm. And so I thought, that's what is that about? <laughs> that phrase is not about me personally. That phrase is about them. Mm -hmm. There's a reclamation. Mm -hmm. something, power of identity, of how people were created and what their potential was and what their agency was mm -hmm. to learn and to express and to exercise their own um, freedom. Mm -hmm that was stolen mm -hmm. and it was stolen um, not just through laws you know political I, I don't know the political power piece was was interesting to read about um, especially how when the federal voting laws were removed mm -hmm. the states got to work really quickly to reinstate ways to keep political power out of black hands. Mm. Um, that was interesting to me, but what punched me in the gut, mm -hmm. the personal power mm -hmm. that was robbed, mm -hmm. uh, dominating the black body, controlling mm -hmm. the black mind, total domination, mm. uh, which means they were taught to think of themselves in relation to whiteness, mm -hmm. which means they were always less than, not good enough, not pretty enough. Mm -hmm. And then they go on to speak about the doll tests mm -hmm. on page 83 and 84, where they saw the psychological effects of segregation. Mm -hmm. When African-American children were shown four dolls, each identical except for the color of the doll's skin and asked to identify the race of the dolls. When asked to say which doll they preferred, a majority of the black children chose the white doll. Hmm. Martin Luther King calls this mental slavery. Hmm. And that section ends with white supremacy sought to steal personal power of body and mind from generations of African-Americans. We write these words with tears. Yeah. When yeah. I think about a contemplative reading of a book, yeah, that line right there, we write mm. these words with tears, mm. says, if you, if you have an ounce of feeling rising up in you right now, put yeah. the book down. Mm. Put the book down and let yourself feel it. Mm -hmm. Because the only way through is through. Yeah, there's... In this chapter, so many items 
that if we try to have grasp and control over every single one, we'll miss the trees by gazing at the forest. You know, we're trying to sink in. So if you are uh, reading through, close the book, sit down, open your heart to God, talk about that particular thing. Mm. And this is where, as directors, you and I know that prayer only really begins when we can sit with someone who's beginning to notice their resistances, their their obstructions, mm. and is willing to face it without running away. Mm. So with that um, story about the dolls, full disclosure, Denise's daughter, Giselle, was doing some childcare for us, and my daughter, who just turned th- four, uh, was with Giselle, and at one point, they were at the park, and Merritt said, I don't want to be with you anymore. I don't like you. Giselle's, why is that? Merritt said, no joke. I don't like your black skin. (laughs) So not only did Merritt come inside and tell us that she had told Giselle that, but Giselle also talked to us about it. You know, of course, I I felt like I was going to throw up, you know, when I heard it. And, uh, so we had a great talk with Giselle. We called her up. Denise later told me that she was in the other room listening to Giselle talk to Susanna, my wife, about this. And Denise was crying because of how bold and brave Giselle was in loving us. And uh, so no matter how hard we are as a family, you know, worshiping we uh, with black bodies and we have some friends that have black kids mm. we, we would say Mer- you know Aaron comes over here and he's got black skin mm. so I know that sometimes little kids just choose to be willful about anything mm. um, but mm-hmm. no matter how hard we try and all the things we, we are trying to teach our kids there is something conditioning in our, our the air and in, in, she, she likes princesses, you know? She's really into Frozen. And somehow um, she just decided that's what's, what's beautiful. And I even think Frozen is one of the better kids' movies out there. But <laughs> it's still mostly two white leads. And uh, so for Merritt's birthday, she wanted a Frozen-themed thing. So, uh, so black bodies, black kids are conditioned to not love themselves. And then we have from, from the womb, a culture that conditions certain presumptions and preferences. So we're still recovering from that. Wow. (laughs) Uh, You know, Denise's response of tears for how well Giselle was able to love Merritt and love your mm-hmm. family in that moment mm-hmm. is somehow for me emblematic of God's work of, of restoring Denise's power. Mm. 
It's not power over. It's power to love. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I am humbled mm. every year Denise and I are friends mm. that wow. I get to be the recipient yeah. of that kind of love. Yeah. Thank you. It's powerful. Powerful love. And, and that's a good clarification here. Um, we all are called to have personal power. We all have to have generative capacity. Mm-hmm. That's part of being human. God called us to be fruitful and to multiply. Mm-hmm. So when we think in Enneagram vocabulary, the, the power in the intelligence center of the gut, the body, we all have that. The question isn't if we have power in a gut. The question is how we're directing or how we're surrendering or how we're co- using that power to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to as you're saying, with Denise, that's what's so stunning about her. Someone who is so incredibly powerful and yet directs all that power into love. Ugh. Ugh. And that's Dr. King, strength to love, right there. Yes, <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's beautiful. So thank you for bringing it back around to her. Um, as we bring this to a close, you know, how do you, how are you sitting with the book as a whole? Tell me about your journey mm. with this with this text. <laughs> as a as an endlessly curious person who wants to share what I'm learning with others. Mm. Uh, serving in a pastoral vocation, it means everything I learn I feel responsible for communicating to somebody. (laughs) And a lot of times when I'm in work mode, I read books because I do have to translate that quickly from my mind to my gut and my heart into words for people on a Sunday morning, this coming Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a big ask uh, for white pastors around the topic of Mm anti-racism. You can't like jump into that topic on a Monday and expect to have something to stay by Sunday. Yeah. Unless you've been swimming in it for a long time Uh and you, you have a a deep well to draw from. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think that my well is growing. Mm But this text on reparations and the way that it's pieced together to call us as Christians to repentance and repair, I needed to, I was, I was like, why am I not reading this? Why I'm so drawn to this kind of material. And I realized, oh, it's because I don't want to quickly consume it and use it. There you go. That's what I'll feel like I need. How does my congregation need to hear this? How do I need to move these people from point A to point B? How do we wrestle with it? Are my people ready for it? Who's ready for it? Wait, am I ready for it? What does my gut need to process? And for me, I I am in the gut center as my home on the Enneagram. Uh, When I say things like, I got so mad about it. Yeah. I need space to let myself be mad and put a name to that and then ask, why? Why are you mad? Mm-hmm. And to 
sit with that contemplatively with the spirit and let my body process uh, things it needs to teach me. Uh, So I read the majority of this text on vacation, which (laughs) seems crazy to some people. Like, why would you read a book about reparations on vacation? But for me, it gave me the space to deep dive. And and I feel so alive, frankly, when I um, do that kind of um, meditate. It it doesn't sound meditative because I get very um, uh, worked up about it. But for me, it is because it's pure engagement. It's letting myself experience the, the impact of it. Yeah. And, and process it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of impact. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. uh, That's, that's beautiful. So you're saying um, to leaders, whether it's a pastor or a leader, that's wanting to then respond uh, in practice you're saying be patient with yourself. Yes. Um, be gentle. Mm-hmm. Slow down. Give yourself a chance to really absorb this. Um, so, yeah, when I uh, realized what I'd gotten myself into with this journey, <laughs> <laughs> this summer and all the things, other things I had to do, I, I was on a retreat. It was already scheduled at the end of April. And then I just chose like, I just got to use this whole retreat just to do like what you're saying, to sit with the book. And I, I started by rereading Ta-Nehisi Coates' essay from The Atlantic, A Call for Reparations. So I wanted to hear someone outside of the Christian tradition talk about this so that I could then refresh um, my belief in this through this Christian vision. But you're exactly right. I needed to have three days to read a bit to take a walk, to go back to sleep, <laughs> to read a little bit more, to do some journaling, to go take a walk. Where I was at a retreat center where there's a labyrinth. So I, I did labyrinth work in and out of reading this. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, we need the space. Otherwise, I get too fascinated by um, things like the list of myths we started telling ourselves mm-hmm. as a nation mm-hmm. during Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And I just want to talk to anybody who will listen to me about <laughs> the lies we started to tell and the things I believed. <laughs> Sit down. Do you got some notes you want to you pay attention? <laughs> no, seriously, there is, that, there is also then that, that, uh, that impulse to, to, to connect the dots. That's the whole point of this podcast. Um, but what we're trying to do is create a contemplative action, a a mystical movement that uh, trusts in the slow work of God. Oh my gosh, Josh, it's all so good. Yeah. What probably made me cry before the whole doll thing even was, uh, okay, look at the paragraph on 81 where it says, erased were the truths of the dignity of their humanity, the crime of their abduction, the violence of their subjugation, the significance of their labor, the sale of their children, the desperation of their resistance, the courage of their flight. And as the paragraph goes on, it begins to speak of these 
the character, not just what happened to them, but the char- the resilience of their communities, the mm-hmm. shrewdness of their institutions, the brilliance of their art, mm-hmm. the power of their religion, the legitimacy of their demands, the triumph of their mere survival. Amen. I wanted to stand up like in tears and mm-hmm. and clap. I can't even imagine a person, let alone a people, surviving mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Where are the monographs and monuments to these truths? In the white supremacist mythology of post-war America, the answer is nowhere. Mm-hmm. So still, there is willed forgetting. We mm-hmm. don't want to see. I want, I want us to see. Mm-hmm. Um, Boy, Josh, there is, aren't there like a million things? I'm not going to do a million <laughs> things, but that makes me think so much about monuments. Seriously. Yeah, totally. Like you're so sad your Confederate monument is getting torn down mm-hmm. when there aren't monuments to this people who survived mm-hmm. what we did to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, see, I get mad. <laughs> uh, 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 well, like I said, we need to be mad. Um, I think, again, that's the gift of Denise. Mm. Um, and you do it for love. You yeah. do, it, do it for love of a people. Amen. Amen. And that's, that's ultimately what Brian and I were talking about, that um, to pretend that there's not something to be mad about, oh. to, uh, to, to placate sickness... If we believe our parents are ailing, if there's a sickness, and, and if there's no doctors around to help them, there's nobody's helped my mm. parents, my grandparents, mm. why is nothing happening here to help them? Is there not a bomb in Gilead? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So that's part of our lament, our, mm-hmm. our, and which is tied to real, true repentance. Um, And I'll and also mention that Greg Thompson, uh, one of the authors, his main vocation now, he's not a local church pastor anymore, is to lead an organization that is developing a national memorial for the Underground Railroad mm-hmm. to tell these stories. Mm. So... <laughs> That's great. Um, uh, the the prayer. Yeah. Why don't we close with that? Is that cool? I really would like to encourage people to to be less afraid of truth. Mm. Uh, we're we live under fear that lies have created. Mm-hmm. So let the truth set you free. Mm-hmm. This is a prayer by the right Reverend Stephen Charleston, Choctaw. Let me not look away, O oh God, from any truth I should see. Even if it is difficult, let me face the reality in which I live. 
I do not want to live inside a causative dream, imagining I am the only one who is always right or believing only what I want to hear. Help me to see the world through other eyes, to listen to voices distant and different, to educate myself to the feelings of those with whom I think I have nothing in common. Break the shell of my indifference. Draw me out of my prejudices and show me your wide variety. Let me not look away. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Julie Van Til, it is a incredible gift uh, to be with you. I can see why Denise especially wanted you to sit. So thank you for your your time and mm. to your friend your friendship in this journey. Thanks, Josh. It was great to be with you in this hard stuff. We need partners uh, in the hard stuff. Um, and we need partners who believe that it's worth going through it because the vision of the kingdom is always before us. Thank you. So a big thanks to Pastor Julie for taking the time, not just to read the book, but to really give herself to this topic and to sit with us here in this episode. What a, what a gift. The question posed early on in the pandemic as we quarantined was whether we should return back to normal. Because if we do try to return back to whatever we thought was normal before all of this, will we have missed the opportunity to learn what the pandemic, what COVID-19 was here to teach us? So if you have had time to listen to this series beginning with my conversation with the Reverend Dr. Denise Kingdom Greer, then you will have heard us speculate about this convergence of the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd and the racial upheaval all of last summer that was in the wake of that injustice. It is interesting to watch the numbers of the subscribers for the Invitation podcast, to watch them shrink <laughs> and I have to laugh, oh, to laugh or cry. Uh, I am not here as a follower of Christ to, to judge and condemn anyone. As a spiritual director, however, my discernment is that most of us do not want to look at ourselves. Most of us don't want to confront the demons the vices, the addictions, the distractions. So much of our American culture has taught us just to continue on autopilot. 
Just let the water carry us along. Don't ask any hard questions. And at the same time, don't expect too much of me. So I know that uh, my mailer announcement for the episode before the last on the occasion of chapter two, I just titled my mailer Seeing Racism on the 4th of July. And I want to continue in this conversation that Brian Berghoff and I considered in the last episode that I'm not here either to try to perpetuate any culture wars. I do not want to encourage any cynicism, any weaponizing of black justice voices. I am simply here to try to create a time and a space for you to consider the voice, the presence, the truth and love of Jesus. I do hope that you can bear witness as you sit with these episodes of this summer series that you can hear hearts, voices that are full of love and hope for the church, hope for the followers of Jesus. With all that said, one of my movements of hope are these formation schools that we are developing here. The School of Prayer and the School of Contemplative Listening are not intended to replace the local church, but to instead create a time and space for us to linger in our questions, our doubts, our confessions, our fears, our worry, and then to discover underneath those things the sparks of love and hope to find prayer in surprising places. So the School of Prayer and the two-year certification in spiritual direction are becoming a response to these troubles in our world. And instead of wallowing in any kind of despair, we are providing some opportunities for people to come together and to discover God even in the midst of this kind of present darkness. So I do invite you to peruse our formation tab at theinvitationcenter.org. You can look over the descriptions of those two formation experiences. There's a couple videos on each page that will offer some more context, I hope depth and breadth for you to imagine what it would be like for you to invest and dive into this experience of growth. As I serve mostly pastors and prisoners, I am aware that the spaces where God is most freely allowed to function and to act and to move, those spaces look a lot more like a prison, like an AA meeting, a 12-step group working through addictions, an impatient treatment program for people struggling with depression and anxiety or an eating disorder. 
so many of the pastors I sit with are just waiting for a moment when the people they lead are willing to embrace their weakness and to confess their struggles and to find God in and through the brokenness. So the school of prayer and the school of contemplative listening are not spaces for super spiritual, elite, sophisticated people who have mastered prayer. These formation schools are spaces for weak, poor, tired, scared, exhausted, angry, lonely, impatient, but yet weak and aware of their hunger for a God help, a spirit help, a Jesus transformative love help. So please do check out those opportunities again at the invitationcenter.org. And if you are someone listening who has not subscribed yet to the Invitation Podcast, you can find a tab to subscribe on our home landing page, the bottom of that first screen. We are not soliciting any funding for the invitation in its main form in all of what it has been doing, but we are welcoming those that feel stirred by this conversation about reparations, those that would like to help amplify the voice of strong black prophetic teachers, please do consider making a donation and make a note as you do that, that your funds are being provided to support my work with the Reverend Dr. Denise Kingdom Greer. You can find that donation page also at our website. A final comment here. I mentioned this awkward situation with my daughter and Denise's daughter Giselle offering some childcare. And I am happy to say that my wife reported that just over the weekend, my daughter, who just turned four, said that she loves Giselle's black skin. So thank you, thank you for listening to this podcast, for journeying with me, for reading this very important book, for entering into your own discernment, and I hope for also discussing it with others. If this resource with the invitation has been helpful for you in your own growth, if this resource of the podcast has encouraged you, helped you follow God in any more intentional ways, please do offer us the gift by sharing this resource with others. So until next time, may you be blessed in your journey to become more like Jesus, to go where he goes, to see what he sees, to hear what he hears, and to love those people whom he loves. Amen. Amen.